Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. Why don't we start with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many graces you've given us, especially those that you mediate to us through the signs and efficacy of your holy sacraments. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Can everyone hear me all right? Is this loud enough? Yeah, okay. Um, Well, so uh, tonight's talk um, is titled The Eucharist and Growth in Holiness, Sacrifice and Sacrament. So what I'd like to do is talk through a number of aspects of the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas that contribute to a, a holistic understanding of holiness that is rooted in a Eucharistic spirituality and draws its strength and efficacy from uh, communion in the Eucharist specifically. Uh, So to do that, I'd like to do a few things. Uh, First, talk about what holiness is for Aquinas, and then move into talking about what a sacrament is, and in a a related sense, what a sacrifice is, which is a distinct concept for St. Thomas and then begin to talk about both of those things in the context of the Eucharist and how that affects our own approach to living a life of holiness in the church and in communion uh, as well, in Holy Communion. So what is holiness? Um, In one sense, uh, we probably think we're familiar with what that means. Um, It means growth in, well, closeness to God, right? Becoming closer to God. Uh, There's a technical definition, a more technical definition we could supply from St. Thomas Aquinas, however, which is specifically growth in the virtue of charity. Um, Now, charity, St. Thomas will tell us, is the queen of all the virtues. That is, it has the ability to unite the moral life under a common banner, if you will, under a common purpose. Every virtue for St. Thomas Aquinas represents a, a particular area or quality of perfectibility within the moral life a particular aspect of the human person which can be brought to full fruition um, with God's help, of course, but as an intrinsic perfection of human nature. Now, one of the the classic examples from the Dominican tradition uh, of what it means um, to grow in holiness in this this sense, to grow in virtue, is the image of a tree, which St. Catherine of Siena, building on other Dominicans earlier in the 13th and 14th century, used to describe the reality of virtue, and that is simply this. You have many branches and buds on the tree, if you will, right? <laughs> and uh, virtue and the acts that come from it represent live branches. So there's a distinction between habitus and act there. The habit is the branches and the fruit is, well, the fruit, right? That's the act. Now, um, when we have virtue, we have a live branch, as it were. When we have vice, we have a dead branch, right? So in a lot of classical editions of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, you'll often find a, a picture of the tree uh, in the Secunda Pars, right? Uh, and it's an illustration of the way in which the life of virtue grows. Um, even despite all the distinctions, so the Secunda Pars of the Summa is by far the largest section, right? Um, compared to the Prima Pars, the first part, and the third part on the sacraments, if you see it on a shelf, uh, the Secunda Pars is at least twice as big as the others. Um, There are a lot of distinctions when we talk about um, human perfection and the life of virtue. But all of that is united, ideally, right, under a single formality. Uh, Conversely, of course, you know, when we talk about the reality of sin and and the way in which uh, our fallen nature begins to affect us, right, um, 
which is part of our common experience and um, part of the darkness we experience in the world, um, we can think about not only dead branches, if you will, of a tree, but what St. Thomas will tell us is a kind of disorder, right? Um, the moral life, a lot of Thomas theologians will say, can be best typified or best understood as a work of wisdom. Right? Um, it's not enough to just obey laws or follow rules, although you should do that, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but um, wisdom orders towards the good, right? Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, at the beginning of the Contra Gentiles, right, tells us that the office of the wise man is to order things, to set things in their proper order. Uh, so wisdom is more than just knowing the individual parts. It's more than just knowledge. It's actually a higher form of knowing. It's knowing what to do with what you know. Uh, to be a wise man in this sense is to have the ability and the practical prudence um, to order things in a fitting way. So when we think about growth in the moral life, charity has the supreme capacity to do that for us in a supernatural key, right? Uh, what it's doing effectively is reordering the human person according to a common pursuit, which is the love of God and the love of neighbor, right? Uh, so charity in this sense is about love, and we'll see there's a deep connection as well between love and sacrifice, certainly on an anthropological level, but also when we talk about the sacraments and the sacramental economy as rooted in the passion of Jesus Christ, this takes on a new character, both as a sign of Christ's passion, but also something, something that we do, both liturgically and in the rest of our lives. Sacrifice comes to play an important role in what it means to be charitable. What does it mean to be on fire with the love of God? So before we go, there's just a few more things about the moral life, charity, and supernatural perfection for St. Thomas Aquinas. When I say supernatural perfection, uh, what I don't mean um, is something similar to the frosting on top of a cake. You can imagine that, right? Uh, as if nature were the cake uh, and grace were the frosting, right? Um, you can come up with your own analogy if you don't like that one. <laughs> but um, in, that, in that case, which, which isn't St. Thomas's view, um, the, the cake, if you will, or nature, it, it has a kind of intrinsic unity to itself. And the frosting implies a kind of duality layered on top, right? That's not what's going on in the relationship between nature and grace. Not exactly. Um, one of the problems with that type of thinking, right, is that it isolates both spheres from each other. Grace has very little to do with nature. <clears throat> the supernatural, very little to do with the natural. We do believe, of course, uh, that grace perfects nature, however. Even before the fall, uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, Thomas Aquinas tells us that grace functioned even in the state of nature, so-called, right? If you even just prescind from the, the darkness of original sin, the problems that come with it, grace functioned like the keystone of an arch, right? In terms of what, what's holding human nature together in the life of grace, in the life of virtue, it's the goodness of God, right? Uh, it's the ordering of the human person around the love and worship of God and the love of our neighbor as well. So even before we start talking about the supernatural end that comes as a specific result of the incarnation and the sacramental dispensation, the whole life of the church, which is ordered towards heaven, and for St. Thomas is centered around the beatific vision, um, which is more than just a prize for earthly good behavior, Right? Um, the beatific vision for St. Thomas is the highest perfection of an intellectual nature. The human person is, is intellectual, fundamentally. That's not to say you have to be intellectualist, right? or that you have to have intellectual work as your occupation, but the capacity to know and to love universal things, universal truths, to work for things and projects beyond the extent of our, our daily uh, bodily needs, for example, or material possessions. Uh, that's a special capacity of human life and of the human person. And the highest universal good is the divine essence. It's God himself. The problem, of course, that arises immediately is that we have no proportionality for that end. So there's a kind of paradox written into the human condition from the very beginning. It's certainly uh, true. It's true to say that beatitude, God himself, is the final end of the human person. Um, there's no higher perfection that a rational nature could achieve. And yet we are in a state of radical poverty with regard to the proportionality of our own nature. Now, proportionality is just a way of measuring what's possible for a nature. 
either according to what Aquinas and Aristotle will call active or passive potency. And, and all that means is if, if you think about, um, take a soccer ball, for example, right? A soccer ball has a passive potency to be kicked across the room. Uh, it's acted upon, right? Um, but active potency would be for it to act itself, which soccer balls don't really do. But self-moving creatures like us, uh, we do that all the time. We have a kind of scope of natural action, which is natural to us, right? And fitting and proportionate. There's no sense in which beatitude, right, <laughs> is within the grasp of, of anything that could happen to us by our own self-movement or by being moved by another. Something has to change, right, uh, in, the, in the very essence of human nature to make that possible. That change is grace, right? Uh, that change is sanctifying grace. And what that means for St. Thomas, uh, effectively, is that that proportionality problem that he talks about, this is in the Prima Secundae, of the Summa Theologiae, if you're interested in question 109, um, that that proportionality problem that he talks about is fundamentally resolved by the change that grace brings with it. So grace doesn't affect a substantial change, it doesn't change us into something we weren't before, uh, into elephants as opposed to human persons or something like that. Uh, but it does impart a supernatural perfection into the essence of the soul that makes it possible with God's initiative and his help, with his motion, He's really the one moving the soccer ball, if you will, right? Uh, when we talk about the theological life and um, the type of activity that comes with participation in God's life through charity. Um, but bearing that in mind, there's been a real intrinsic change in us so that acts of charity are our acts, right? They're human acts, um, sustained and supported by divine motion, of course, with God's help. But they're real human acts, which is why for the Thomistic tradition, grace is intrinsically divinizing. It's not frosting on top of a cake, right? But it's a perfection and elevation. Uh, now this is where the cake analogy is failing me, right? <laughs> but of a nature itself, which is capable of doing a lot more than a cake, right? Um, of knowing and loving universal truths um, and of animating its own life and the life of the world around it with the implications of that same love. So bearing all that in mind, um, the life of grace for St. Thomas Aquinas is an incredibly exalted reality that ushers us into a, a new participation in the life of God. And he says that very explicitly, right? Uh, this is it, beginning of the, even in the prima parts, the beginning of the Summa, he tells us that grace is nothing other than a participation in the divine nature, that it, impart, that it imparts a, a Trinitarian indwelling to the soul, right? Uh, the Trinitarian persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to dwell within the human heart. This is all very important for understanding the sacramental economy because the sacramental economy for St. Thomas Aquinas is an outgrowth of a specific way of understanding the incarnation in light of the reality of grace. Let me say a little bit more about that. So in terms of the sacraments in general, we've said a little bit about holiness, what grace is, and how that affects St. Thomas's thought about human perfection and beatitude in the life of charity. But sacraments themselves, for St. Thomas, they don't make any sense apart from a particular understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what his role is in the economy of salvation. Sacraments are instrumental extensions for St. Thomas of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So the humanity of Christ, of course, that's um, if we go back to thinking about the Trinity, uh, you know, which uh, that's, that's God himself, of course, uh, three persons in one God, eternal, indivisible, right, um, for all time. But there's a visible mission attributed to the Son. That's the incarnation. That's Christ visible in our flesh, taking on the essence of human nature upon himself and uniting it to his Godhead in the person of the Word. That's a, a visible mission, right? But that reality of sanctifying grace that I was speaking about a minute ago with the Trinity dwelling within our hearts, which is probably something we, we don't think about very much, but it's a reality for Aquinas. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> um, it, it's a new way of relating to God. Right? It means that there's an invisible mission on the part of the Son and the Spirit as well um, to the, the rational soul itself, that our capacity of knowing and loving, of intellect and will, ha has been fundamentally divinized, right? uh, grasped, as it were, by God himself, who's come to us of his own initiative through no merit of our own, um, through the, the economy um, that comes with the incarnation and the life of the church. So how do sacraments fit into that? We have this sense of a visible and an invisible mission. In the case of the Son, that's Jesus Christ, right? The visible mission is what it sounds like. That's his earthly life. 
what he did, what he suffered. But then there's this invisible reality in which he's dwelling in each one of our hearts right now in the reality of grace. So when we think about that, bridging that gap, if you will, uh, the sacraments are an instrument in the hand of the humanity of Christ. So the analogy that Aquinas uses is like a stick or a tool in the hand. If you imagine yourself or you can imagine me <laughs> wielding some kind of stick or, or a tool, maybe a carpenter's tool, like a, an axe or a saw or something like that. Uh, the sacraments are like conjoined instruments, or rather the humanity is a conjoined instrument and sacraments are separated instruments. All that's to say that uh, the humanity of Christ, when we think about how grace reaches us, right, on a, on a regular basis, the humanity of Christ is uh, what, what Aquinas would call a most excellent instrumental cause in the, the dispensation of grace. How does indwelling, Trinitarian life, get, first of all, implanted within us, but then also stirred up, if you will, on a daily basis? The sevenfold sacramental economy for St. Thomas is a way of talking about how that process is happening within us. According to seven different modes, those are the seven sacraments, each with their, their own special identity and causal effect in the order of grace. But nonetheless, one reality of sanctification, one humanity of Jesus Christ with many tools, as it were. The fact that the sacraments are visible is important for Aquinas because they're signs. Um, this for Aquinas runs, it touches on a deep truth that has to do with the very makeup of our human nature. It's true that we're intellectual creatures, as I was mentioning a minute ago, but um, that's not all we are. Right? We're also deeply embodied creatures. We learn through the senses. Uh, we can't think about much of anything without starting with some sensory experience. Even the most um, abstract ideas of mathematics or physics or philosophy started somewhere in experience. Right? So bearing that in mind, the, the communication, um, God can do what he wants, of course. Right? Uh, he's not bound by anything except the ratio of his own nature. Right? He's not bound by any rules or laws external to himself. Uh, but that being said, what he does is fitting and wise. <laughs> what he actually does makes sense, right? at least from the, from the perspective of divine wisdom. So the whole sacramental economy and the incarnation respects the hylomorphic integrity of the human person. That is, the human person is both body and soul, spiritual and immaterial, and respects the, the way in which we learn. Uh, which is through the senses for the most part. No matter how high we come, uh, how, no matter how many levels of abstraction we ascend, uh, we can trace that back to the senses in some way. There's no way for us to learn or to come into contact with new ideas even without some reference to the senses, most likely. So the sacraments are pedagogical in that sense. Uh, when we think about them as signs, when we think about the stuff we see, Right? Uh, in the Eucharist, for example, the bread and the wine on the altar, for example, or, or in other sacraments of baptism, the water washing. So signs in this sense, because they're visible, have a pedagogical quality, a teaching quality to them. That's also true of the incarnation. Again, God can do what he wants. He's not bound you know, to do things exactly a certain way or to save us at all. Right? I mean, all of this is grace. It's pure gratuity. Um, but the humanity of Christ, that it comes in visible form, right, comes in our likeness, right, uh, is a pedagogical move on God's part. So there's an element to all sacraments which uh, we could say falls under the category of teaching. Uh, teaching us what? <laughs> teaching us about the life of grace. Teaching us about charity. Teaching us about what it means to grow in holiness. So when we experience the sacraments, any of the sacraments, uh, but there are some sacraments we experience more than others. Right? Some we only receive once. You, you, some of you may remember your own baptism. Uh, I'm a cradle Catholic. I, I don't. <laughs> um, so I wasn't you know, there for the... I was there, but I, I don't remember <laughs> signs, right? <laughs> and I suspect that's probably true for a lot of you as well. Uh, but the Eucharist, that's a daily, uh, can be a daily, certainly a weekly encounter, right, uh, with the Lord. We know, of course, he's really present, truly substantially present in the Eucharist. But what we see is the outer signs. Um, what we see is the outer signs. So when we talk about the, the sacraments, all the sacraments as signs, what we're effectively saying is that they have a kind of incarnational pedagogy to them. That is to say that they reference something about the truth of Jesus Christ. They teach us something just by encountering them. This is one of the reasons why Eucharistic adoration is so powerful, if you've had the chance to experience that. 
were not physically receiving the sacrament, at least not in the act of adoration. But by adoring the sacred species that we see, we're, we're spending time with the signs, effectively. And of course, in the real presence of Jesus Christ. But that's available to us in the tabernacle as well, and in lots of other ways. But there's something about being in the presence of the signs, right? And, and directing the, the eyes of contemplation, the eyes of the heart, towards those signs and allowing them to speak to us. Okay, so sacraments are signs. Um, sacraments are also causes, right? Uh, they're not just signs. Uh, the sacraments of the old law uh, were signs, but not causes. They're anticipatory signs that draw their ratio, their explanation from the incarnation by way of anticipation, by a faith which looks forward to the incarnation. But the sacraments of the new law, like the Eucharist or baptism, those are also causes. And when we say cause in this sense, it's uh, just a way of describing that kind of separated instrumentality, like a stick in the hand, right? Um, so the sacraments are causing a divine effect. Now, very briefly, um, this was a controversy in the 13th century, actually, <laughs> and in other times as well. How could you have a, um, a, a created thing, right? Uh, like a stick in the hand or water of baptism or bread or wine, you know, something which is clearly material and limited. How could that be causing a, a supernatural effect? Well, very briefly, Aquinas' answer is simply this. Every instrument operates by the formality of the principal agent. Uh, if you think about an architect building a house, um, the plan for the house is in the architect's mind. And if whatever tool he's using, if you say he's using an ax, for example, that's Aquinas' example, the sharpness of the ax cuts, that's the operation of the ax, right? But the house is attributed to the formality of the principal agent. No ax ever built an a house by itself, right? <laughs> uh, if you leave the ax alone, it'll just sit there. Uh, and in the hands of someone with no plan, uh, you're not going to get a house. <laughs> You'd get uh, probably not much, right? Um, you know, so um, the, the formality, if you will, the whole is in the mind of God. And also the, the causal efficacy, even the efficient efficacy, the motion, right, is coming from the principal agent, which is God. Um, and more directly, it's Christ in his divinity and then in, in his humanity, right, which is a, an instrument of the Godhead. And has been conjoined, as it were, united to God um, in, a, in a special sense through the hypostatic union. So bearing all that in mind, uh, the sacraments are causes, but their causality is deeply connected to the way in which they're a sign. Right? Um, they're not completely separate streams of thought as if, well, they signify one thing, but they're causing something in another way. It's, it's the operation of the sign that's doing the causing in a lot of cases. It's the axe swinging or the water of baptism washing, right? So as the water washes, as, as St. Augustine will say, the water washes the body, but cleanses the heart, right? Uh, cleanses the heart by the power of God, of course, which is moving through that external motion, if you will, of the sacrament. Um, so sacraments are signs and causes in this sense, and this applies to all sacraments, whether we're talking about the anointing of the sick, the Eucharist, or uh, the water of baptism or holy orders, anything you choose to name. There's always a sign and there's always some uh, effect, right, in the order of grace. And what is the house that God is building, so to speak? Uh, it's sanctifying grace, right? Uh, it's the indwelling of the Trinity that's being built up as a preparation, a habituation of the creature for beatitude. That's the house, so to speak, or the, the formal design in the mind of the artist. Um, in light of which the whole program of the incarnation the seven sacraments and the life of the church, all those things are instrumental with re, with, in regard to that final end, uh, that constitutive end of beatitude for the human person. Okay, so um, those are just some things about sanctification and the sacraments in general. Um, but to turn our attention towards the Eucharist itself, um, when Aquinas talks about the Eucharist, he talks about the Eucharist as one of a group of three um, intrinsically perfective sacraments, okay? Um, and what I mean by that is, you, so for, you can make two divisions, uh, and then a few more, and then a few more, and a few more, if you, if you keep reading the Summa. <laughs> but um, the, the one in question here is between um, sacraments which are intrinsically perfective and those which we could call maybe accidentally perfective. And, and it goes like this, right? So what sacraments directly perfect 
the growth of Trinitarian indwelling and sanctifying grace directly. I mean, that's what they're causing. That's what they're, they're giving and stirring up, if you will, through their, their motion and their efficacy through our contact with them. Uh, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, right? Those three. Um, by contrast, a sacrament like um, uh, confession, for example, uh, penance, or uh, anointing of the sick, right? Uh, those would be sacraments which are, um, are ordered to the perfection of the human person in an accidental way, it presumes you've committed sins, which, I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but they're not intrinsic. They're, they're ordered to uh, fixing the problem, as it were, reorienting the person back towards the trajectory of the life of grace. So they only make sense in light of the ratio of the other three, baptism, um, confirmation, and Eucharist. Other sacraments, just incidentally, like holy orders or matrimony or Aquinas, are ordered to perfection in a different way. Uh, and that's the perfection of the whole rather than the individual. Both of those sacraments, matrimony and holy orders, are ordered towards the perfection of the social whole in the church, one in a natural and one in a supernatural sense. Right? So in terms of the Eucharist, however, the Eucharist, Aquinas will say, is the most perfect of all the sacraments in terms of ordering them in a hierarchy. Um, and when Aquinas says hierarchy, he doesn't mean to imply any defect or any lessening intrinsically on the part of anything ordered. It's a properly metaphysical hierarchy in the, in the old fashioned sense, <laughs> um, not quite Neoplatonism, but in a, in a medieval sense for sure, right? That actually hierarchy is the way, if you want to image um, the simple goodness of God in finite being, you're gonna need diversity and you're gonna need order, right? Um, so you're, you're creating a sort of tapestry of created goods, right? Which are ordered in a fitting pattern according to the wisdom of God. That's creation. Uh, and recreation mirrors that for St. Thomas. So when we think about the Eucharist as the highest of all the sacraments, uh, among the tools, if you will, in the hand of Christ, um, in the hand of his humanity, there is a kind of ordering about them. And the order has to do with perfection in terms of how close um, is the, the kind of effect associated with the sacrament to the whole point of the form itself. And Aquinas is going to say the Eucharist is the closest because it is a sacrament which is deeply connected with the, the act and habit of charity. Right? You may have heard it called the sacrament of charity, sacramentum caritatis. Um, that has a, a technical and a, a real meaning for Aquinas, right? Um, beyond just the exterior piety it might incite in us. Uh, and it's simply this, right? And it helps us to understand also how the Eucharist can be both a sacrament and a sacrifice. Um, okay, so as a sacrament of charity, um, you can think about the external sign of all the sacraments, but the Eucharist in particular, as having a kind of three-directional um, orientation. One towards the present, in which the Eucharist is named communion. So what is the sign of the Eucharist when we think about it in relation to just us right, right here and right now? communion, right? Um, what is it when we look to the past? Sacrifice. Uh, and here we're just talking about sacrifice as a sign, right? Um, not a moral act yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> um, so sacrifice to the past, communion in the present, viaticum in the future, right? Uh, viaticum is, is, is food for the journey, uh, food for the final journey. So already you can see how the Eucharist as a sign, which again corresponds with its effect, is stretched across the um, distension, if you will, of the Paschal mystery over space and time and into the consummation of the eschaton, right? Uh, the last judgment and heaven itself. So the Eucharist as a sign and also as, as a sacramental effect, um, not only reminds us of those spiritual realities, but draws us into them. So charity, when we talk about charity as an effect within us and as a particular effect of the Eucharist, um, is, has a particular ability to orient us toward the universal, towards the whole, towards what's most eternal. Uh, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, charity has this kind of ordering effect on the moral life. Uh, and that's simply to say that it's, it's what Aquinas will call a general virtue, um, the most general of virtues. That means that every other virtue you could name, and there's a lot of them, and Sakuna Park's big place, right? <laughs> Any other virtue you could name, no matter how specific, no matter how, how fine-grained, can be operated by charity, which is to say that there's nothing you can't do. There's no aspect of your life 
There's no aspect of the tree of virtue, St. Catherine's virtue tree, which can't be alive in the love of God and the love of neighbor. That is to say that the, the intent or the formality of charity, that intent to love God and worship him uh, and to love our neighbor as an act of love for God, there's no part of our life, no fabric of our life, no stitch too small that charity can't be woven into as a kind of operative intent. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing anything? Whatever it is that you're doing. You know, uh, it can be for the love of God. right? Uh, and so our whole life can become a kind of sacrifice of praise in as much as charity is the reason that underlies everything. Right? Now, if you set out to accomplish this on your own just by trying harder, you'd probably become discouraged right? Uh, and give up uh, half a week in or something probably. right? Um, but uh, Again, the sacraments are, are deeply fitting in an anthropological sense. They're meant to not accommodate our weakness or make excuses for it, but authentically heal and elevate what we actually are, which is finite creatures, right? Uh, finite creatures um, who have, with God's help, um, the, the ordering in the, in the life of grace to a supernatural end and to beatitude itself. So bearing all that in mind, when we think about the Eucharist in relation to charity, we can think about it as a sacrament and a sacrifice. Okay, now, um, and this is the final section of my talk, and then we can stop and, and I'll take some questions. Um, the distinction between sacrament and sacrifice in this sense, now, before I mentioned the sacrifice as a sign, right, where the Eucharist as a sign indicates or points to Christ's passion, uh, that, that's definitely the case, right? But that's really as sacrament, it's the dimension of the sacramentality of the Eucharist. But a, um, a sacrifice is distinct. It's a moral act in this sense. Okay, so again, remember a sacrament, can it's a sign and a cause. So when we're receiving grace from the Eucharist, which we do, that stirs up the life of charity, we're really talking about it as a sacrament. Uh, that is a, 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 an incarnational sign, uh, which is the means by which God is choosing to cause and stir up, if you will, the life of sanctifying grace within us. A sacrifice, however, goes back into, um, you have to start even within natural law itself. Um, it, it's not, um, in and of itself, it's a concept which runs deeper within our anthropology than anything imposed by the Christian religion. Um, now, remember, it's thinking about grace and nature like a cake or with frosting or, or some other kind of duality like that is not very helpful. Uh, it's partially because there are elements of nature itself that are getting elevated, as it were, and drawn into really intrinsic and important aspects of Christian life and worship. So a sacrifice, very briefly, is an external act of the virtue of religion. Um, it's an outward sign of interior devotion. And it's different from other types of oblations or offerings. Um, if you want examples, think of the Old Testament, right? A uh, very complex place, uh, ritually speaking, right? <laughs> lots of things being offered, lots of liturgy, very complicated instructions about how to do it, how not to do it. Um, there's specification of external acts there, right? Uh, Aquinas actually says, and, he, and this he's following Cicero. Um, you can read a lot about religion in Cicero, the Roman philosophy and also Greek philosophy as well. They had a sense of religiosity, that it was something written into the human person, into human nature, and that it has social ramifications also wasn't just a private project. So Aquinas picks up on this, right? Um, and there's a, there's a notion in Aquinas, which again, you can find in classical philosophy, that those external acts of religion really need um, to, take, to take form, to be something more than an inclination, uh, need a kind of legal specification. That is uh, someone with authority over the common good, whether it's the, the king or the local governor or the high priest, uh, you know, who has a social role or something like that, has to be the one to uh, direct, if you will, right, uh, the external exercise of religion. Um, so again, it's an, it's an outward sign of, the, of inner devotion, right, uh, sacrifices. And it's similar to oblations or other types of offerings. But what makes it distinct is that something is consumed, right? If you think of the Holocaust offering in the Old Covenant, uh, there, there's an offering consumed, wholly consumed. There are other lesser sacrifices under the old law in which a portion is reserved for the use of the priest, perhaps, when he has to eat, right? So that's, that's what, um, so there's a, there's a portion reserved of some lesser offerings to sustain uh, the temple clergy, right? Uh, and there's some other uh, 
uh, offerings as well, where there's a portion reserved, where it's not totally consumed, but the Holocaust offering, right, um, is the one in which the whole burnt offering is consumed. It's the highest of all possible offerings. That's the analogy Aquinas uses when he speaks about the Eucharist, right? Um, when he speaks about the presence of Christ's self-oblation in the sacrament as a kind of sacrifice, that what Christ did in his humanity was a whole self-offering. You can find this in the letter to the Hebrews as well. Um, but it was a whole self-offering of everything that he was, right? Um, so Christ is both priest and victim in the new covenant. And so he exemplifies the perfection of sacrifice, not only because he's the one offering and the thing offered, but in his humanity, you also have the recipient. Uh, it's our human nature that is the recipient of the fruit of the sacrifice. So participation in the body of Christ is key to understanding this. And that's effectively what charity and grace are accomplishing, that we're alive in the body of Jesus Christ. We're alive with the, the Trinity in our hearts to be divinized and alive in the life of God. So sacrifice, um, and this will be my last point before I take a few questions, um, for us, now, any offering we would make, even offerings made in charity, can't replace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That would be highly problematic. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, also heretical. So don't think that. Oh, that's bad. Um, <laughs> um, but bearing that in mind, right, uh, what, what happens, we still have this capacity written into our, our lives, our, our anthropology, to offer sacrifice. But we don't have anything to offer in the New Dispensation other than Jesus Christ, right? So again, if you go back to the letter to the Hebrews, there's one offering in the New Covenant, and that's the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you go to the Council of Trent, and here they're really just picking up on elements from Aquinas and also the later Dominican Thomistic tradition, especially Cardinal Cajetan, um, the mass itself is a modality, right, uh, of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the unbloodied mode in the language of the Council Fathers and of Cardinal Cajetan also, <laughs> um, of the, blood, the one bloody mode of the sacrifice. So there is one sacrifice, but there are modes of participation. And, and that unbloodied mode, again, to use the conciliar language, is the, the kind that can be repeated even daily, right? Uh, without instituting multiple sacrifices or repeating sacrifices. So the Eucharist offers us this opportunity to offer a return to God. The, the whole virtue of religion in, in, for Aquinas is about offering God worship uh, in the order of justice. Because we're creatures, we owe a kind of fitting return, a fitting response. So Christ himself becomes the place where that's possible, right? In the order of charity and in the context of the Mass, there's, there aren't multiple sacrifices, but there are, uh, there's, a there's a modal multiplication, right? <laughs> to, to use the council's philosophical language, which just means there's a distinction within unity, one sacrifice, but many opportunities to participate. It's fitting, unlike other sacraments, which are, only, um, which are not repeated, like baptism, for example, that the Eucharist therefore be offered daily, Aquinas says, uh, precisely because it fits our anthropological need um, certainly for sanctifying grace, to have that causal influence in our life where God is stirring up the reality of sanctifying grace and strengthening the habitus of charity within us. But it also provides us an opportunity to fulfill our injustice, our anthropological orientation to offer sacrifice. Anything else we could offer, no matter how important it is to us, would, would be meaningless, right? In light of, not only in light of the debt of sin we've incurred, uh, but just in light of the, the gap, if you will, between our finitude and the perfection of, of who and what God is. What could we offer to him, right, except the very love that he's shown to us? So the Eucharist provides a sacramental context in which we can exercise that. There are other ways in which the rest of our moral lives, outside of going to Mass and making, making a self-oblation, as we receive communion, also become sacrificial because of the indwelling of charity within us. But the Mass itself, and the Eucharist especially, provide a privilege and a unique opportunity to offer a fitting return to God in the order of love. So I think I'll stop there uh, for now, um, but I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. But thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great question. So the question is, um, 
if sacrifice implies something uh, being consumed, what about um, offerings that involve a, a, a self-denial, right? Like uh, not eating meat on Friday or fasting or um, other types of, of offerings which involve a kind of, um, uh, well, not doing something or, or not eating something perhaps, but, or, or something like that, right? Is that, is that, yeah. So I think, um, you know, Aquinas would say he uses sacrifice in a couple different senses. The definition I gave is, is really from the proper act of the virtue of religion, which is external. And he, he is really thinking first and foremost of the old covenant, for example, um, and also of the Eucharist in that context. Those are the examples he gives. There are other types of offerings like oblations, for example, but again, those are external offerings, right? Um, what, what you're talking about mostly is the internal acts of the virtue of religion, I, I think, you know, I think would pertain most directly. The tradition also names those as a sacrifice. Augustine talks about a twofold sacrifice, an inner sacrifice, invisible, and a visible external sacrifice, right? Um, and he uses that to talk about the distinction between charity and the cross in the case of Christ, and uh, the external visible signs of the Eucharist, and the internal reality of charity in the life of the church. That's in the City of God, Book 10. Um, but so Aquinas um, uses the word devotion, uh, roughly speaking, to talk about what Aquinas, what, what Augustine rather would, would name an interior sacrifice. Although sometimes he'll slip and he'll use internal interior sacrifice as well. So there's a proper definition to the external act, but that doesn't mean that there's not a broader analogical sense in which we say sacrifice of interior acts as well, right? Uh, particularly when we make an offering of, um, you know, there. It depends on, I think, uh, if you think about it in, in a broader moral sense, right, there are ways in which um, you may not be, yeah, offering a goat or something or whatever or something to be burnt up on the altar, as it were. Um, but there's, um, there's a moral act. So when you, when you deny, let's say, let's say when you um, don't eat meat on Friday or, or deny yourself uh, food through fasting during Lent or something like that, there's the exercise of the virtue of temperance which has real, that's a, that has being in the moral sphere. It's not just absence, right? Um, so in this sense, sacrifice is a kind of consecration, right? Uh, of the whole person under the, the banner of charity. Um, that's the, the language Aquinas would use to, to talk about that. But it's um, interior sacrifices is, is certainly, it's language Aquinas uses at times, let's say, right? <laughs> and is also deeply Eucharistic. So it, it's definitely an appropriate way to think about that. Um, the, the more specific context I was referring to has to do with how you think about like an external religious rite, like the rites of the old covenant or the, the, the mass itself as a, a rite performed, how you would think about that as a kind of sacrifice or Christ's offering on the cross. Um, but that, but the sense you're mentioning definitely pertains as well. Uh, that's a great question. So the question is, um, if, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, so what, what effect does personal devotion or even personal faith have on the efficacy of the sacraments? Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, so um, it is the case, it's certainly the case of the Eucharist, right, that uh, the devotion, the act of devotion, right, uh, and the active fervor of charity with which we meet the reception of Holy Communion has a real effect on, um, well, the, the degree to which charity is stirred up by reception of the sacrament, right? So there, there's one sense in which sacraments operate, uh, are, always, are always true, right? In the sense that the, Trent uses the definition um, ex opere operato, uh, which, which means they operate by the, just the working of the thing itself. If the Eucharist is happening, well, I mean, no amount of lack of devotion is going to take anything away from the real presence of the Eucharist, for example, right? It will be the Eucharist, <laughs> right? Uh, if the priest says the, the, the right words and you've got actual bread and wine, you know, um, uh, matter, form, intent, it's going to happen, right? Now, um, there's another category, ex opere operantis, uh, which is sort of like the, the way in which the work is done, how the work is done, right? Um, which is, um, this is where degree of devotion starts to matter a lot more. Now, there are certain things in the church's life which are all in that category, like um, sacramentals, for example, praying the rosary or other prayers. Those are really, um, there's no sacramental efficacy, sacrament with a big S, you know, <laughs> going on in, in those cases, which is totally fine. They're, they're exercises of devotion, right? Um, but to make that distinction, to say there's something objective about this, the seven sacraments, isn't to say that devotion isn't important, right? 
Now, um, in the case where faith is completely absent, um, I, you know, uh, this would be a case where um, the, the Eucharist would still be the Eucharist, but it wouldn't have um, the same effect on the person who received it. So Aquinas distinguishes between sacramental, what we call sacramental and spiritual consumption of the Eucharist. Um, so in one sense, you can receive communion uh, just physically, right? I mean, you know, uh, and, and you receive the sacrament. It's really the body and blood of Christ, right? That <laughs> just entered my mouth or yours or whoever's. But um, to receive spiritually, right, um, is to receive the effect as well, which does require disposition. Um, and in the case of like the Eucharist, for example, it requires, you know, I mean, certainly living faith and what we commonly call uh, the state of grace, right? Um, now, it's hard to say without talking to individuals, you know, there's sometimes people are on the fence, you know, and they're just because someone has questions, for example, doesn't mean they lack faith. Uh, it might just be that they have some questions or that they're, you know, going through a difficult time where they're experience temptations against the faith, which in, in which case, honestly, reception of the, the Eucharist could really help, you know, um, if they've really, if they're really, if they've hardened their heart, so to speak, and have really left, um, it's really more the case that they need other sacraments first, right, <laughs> before the Eucharist. Um, and most, they mostly they need grace, right? I mean, they need uh, grace as a gift from God, uh, which converts the heart and turns the heart. Uh, repentance, right, for Aquinas, or penance is really, it's a turning, right? It's a turning of affection um, from created goods to uncreated ones. Um, so the whole life of attachment to sin for Aquinas can be described by an illicit and disordered attachment to created goods, right? Um, and, a, and repentance as a kind of reattachment to God uh, as first cause and as the end of our, of our beatific life, God willing, in the order of grace. So um, repentance can be a, a state, a habit, you know, where we're not, we don't have to always be thinking about penance, although, you know, uh, it's uh, so active thoughts come and go, right? But habitual dispositions, uh, it really has to do which direction you're turned, right? You know, uh, are you consistently and habitually turned away from sins of one's past life, for example, or something like that? Um, that's a, to, to have the, the virtue of penance, but all that is to say that's an effect of grace, you know? So I think, you know, individual cases are complicated sometimes. So, but, um, in, in principle, if someone really doesn't have the faith, I would start, I would start at a more fundamental level, <laughs> um, uh, the, than, than the Eucharist itself. But that doesn't mean the sacramental economy isn't, uh, available to them and, and fitted to their needs too, right? I mean, Sometimes we think of the sacraments as sort of, yeah, for the saints, right, or something. The, the, the truth is they're for sinners, right? And they're for, they're for complicated situations, right? <laughs> because they're fitted to our anthropology, right? Um, there's a wisdom in their order, and they're, they're meant to engage with the reality of the human condition and not a sort of unrealistic, um, you know, imposition or something like that. Uh, but that being said, their order matters in that, in that case. <laughs> I, just, I think your friend's right here. Sorry. To, uh, <laughs> sorry to bother. I think, uh, so the question is, um, in terms of the real presence, right, is, is Christ, is it okay to say Christ is physically present? Or would you say really, truly, substantially? That's the language of the Council of Trent. Uh, Aquinas, in, um, in the middle of his treatise on the Eucharist, takes, he has quite a lot on the real presence, right? And one of the debates that was going on in the Middle Ages, right, is how, um, how the, the substance of Christ, so Christ is substantially present, and this gets a, a little technical in this, but how is he present to space or, or location? Um, and some distinctions you would want to make. Um, if you say he's present to location or space in the way that everything else is, um, you run into some difficulties, and here are a couple of them, right? One, one would be he couldn't be on different altars at once, right, or in multiple tabernacles at once. Uh, because um, if you would, and this is just Aristotle's way of understanding created being, that subsistence, an individual thing, has to do with Socrates versus Plato, for example, this person versus that person, same essence, but the substance is different. Uh, and in that case, it's a material distinction. Uh, they're just subsisting differently and in a divided way in matter. Same essence, both human persons, but two locations and two subsistences that correspond to those locations. Even if they walk around, their location might change, but their 
they also can't be in more than one place at once, right? So they can change their location, which is a category of accidental being for Aristotle. Like, um, you know, stance also, these are just ways you can describe the way someone is or what they're up to. Um, even, uh, yeah, that they might move or, or change space or change stance, sit up, stand down, or whatever, you know, something like that. Um, so we have to apply some analogical nuance, which is um, whenever Aquinas deals with supernatural realities, uh, so for instance, the, the, the essence of God, uh, this is back at the beginning of the Prima Pars when he talks about uh, the doctrine of analogy, you have to use the kind of via negativa or negation to prune away everything that would apply to created being. So um, here's a, a distinction, I mean, just somebody, so a proper analogy would be like goodness is a proper analogy. Uh, to say that God is good. Um, but that's a more abstract statement, right? Um, to say that God is a lion is more metaphorical because it's closer to what we understand. I mean, I've never, well, I saw a lion at the zoo once, I say I never saw, but I, it's not really part of my daily experience, but I have a pretty good grasp of what that is, right? Uh, but it's actually, it's closer to us, right? That's why it's easy to understand and why metaphors are great for teaching and also why the Bible's full of them right? <laughs> because it's really accessible language. That's not to say its content is simple, but it's, uh, it's a good way of teaching as to use examples and metaphors. But when you speak of God directly, what's more accurate is terms that are transcendental, that actually are more true of him than they are of us. So goodness is one of those terms. Uh, so is truth or oneness, uh, things like that. Beauty, depending on who you ask. Uh, <laughs> Plato thinks it is, uh, whatever. But uh, um, so that, that's just an example that when we talk about the Eucharist, we need to make some similar analogical moves so that we don't end up saying something that normally applies to created being, you know, in a way that would um, uh, limit, let's say, you know, the, the um, what's actually happening. In a, it's really a, a miraculous sense, right, um, by the power of God. Now, it is true, um, and Aquinas also talks about the, the tangibility, right, of the accidents, so it's interesting, you have in transubstantiation, right? You have accidents, right? You've got bread and wine to begin with. And then after transubstantiation, it looks and feels like the same bread and wine, right? <laughs> um, so um, he, there's a whole discussion underneath that in, uh, among the medievals about how you can talk about a transubstantive change, right? Which is a change of substance, right? So substantially, this, uh, the place is actually circumscribed by the accidents that remain uh, rather than the substance, um, which is a way of saying that like this host is in this place and Christ is substantially present there. <laughs> um, but Christ can be substantially present in every tabernacle in the state of Virginia, substantially, right? But they're different hosts, right? I mean, it, um, it's, it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ, substantially present, really, truly, substantially present. But the, the accidents, let's say, right, uh, are uh, occupying different space. Now, all that involves an analogical um, leap, let's say, from the way we normally think about space and reality. But it allows us to, to, to maintain the full truth of the Eucharist, effectively. So I think, you know, Sometimes people will say physical in an attempt to emphasize the real presence, which I think as a devotional move is, is okay. But um, if you really double down on it, um, there are some technical problems, which, which don't in any way take away from the real presence, but actually amplify it, I think, if properly. Uh, you're, you're right. So the question is um, uh, preparation for sacraments, right, particularly the Eucharist. And, um, and there's a comparison. So um, in the Eastern churches, um, Eucharist is given with baptism. Right. And also confirmation. It's a package deal. Right. Uh, whereas in the West, it's been uh, spread out, let's say. Right? Um, that's actually a development in the West. Uh, early on in the church's history, the so-called sacraments of initiation were given as a group. Right. Uh, so there's a fitting connection between baptism, confirmation and Eucharist, which Aquinas preserves. Right. By talking about them as a kind of integrated whole, as perfective of the, the life of grace itself. Um, so he preserves that theoretically, but the praxis, the liturgical praxis of the Western church changed um, 
substantially over the years, right? So the, the present the present practice, roughly speaking, that these three things are separated, regardless of when you confirm or when, when you give first communion, they've been spread out, let's say, over the course of a, of a, of a young life, you know, normally, right? Although I will say, though, if you enter the church as an adult, right, of course, you would receive all these three things at once. Uh, has anyone been to the Easter Vigil and seen this happen? Yeah. So this is the ancient practice of the church. Um, some of it in the West is practicality, quite frankly. Um, you know, uh, there's, um, especially with confirmation, because it was reserved to the bishop in the West and uh, in the East, it's, it, it depends, you know, but um, it, uh, it, it can be conferred by an individual, it, it can be conferred by an individual priest in the West also in case of emergency, right? Um, and, uh, and at the Easter Vigil. <laughs> um, but uh, the normal practice is to reserve that to the bishop. Um, there's a lot of historical factors that, that kind of account for that, um, especially with the church getting bigger in the West and more diffusive. Uh, the, the need for priests as kind of subsidiaries of the bishop uh, grew uh, just to become a practical pastoral reality. So some of this is a sort of a pastoral decision, I would say, to be able to reserve some to the bishop, but not all. But in terms of communion, you know, in the West, I mean, you're probably familiar with the, the catechetical language, sort of age of reason, right? That that's kind of the, um, the, the age at which you would, uh, you would give someone communion uh, at, the, at the earliest or confession, which is usually say seven years old, which is kind of a rule of thumb, right? But it's, uh, it's just an attempt to capture that ability to make a, um, uh, a conscious uh, act of desire on the part of the individual. So even for an adult in the case of baptism, they, they do really need to desire the sacrament. You couldn't, I don't know, forcibly baptize them against their will or something, right? I mean, you should not, right? Um, and, um, you know, you, there's a significant component of sacramental reception which requires active devotion to be really fruitful, right? Uh, which is that sort of working of the work part, the uh, ex opere operantis category, where it matters how you use the tool, right? You know, and so I think... Um, because of the necessity of baptism, well, all the sacraments are necessary for salvation in different ways, according to Aquinas, because they're all ways of causing sanctifying grace, right? Which is what's necessary for salvation for Aquinas. But because of the, the, the primary role of baptism in that process, I think it's more a feature of the need uh, and the desire to give that very soon. Um, and in some ways, the, the practice of also trying to give infants communion was never attempted in a widespread fashion in the West. Um, yeah, I think that's, um, but these are reasons of fittingness, right? That's not to say there's, there's nothing wrong with the Eastern practice or the Western practice in this regard. And some of it is, is a result of historical development as much as anything, I would say. Yeah. So the, the question is, what, what, what do I think about or consider um, before I receive the Eucharist? The, the real presence, you know? I mean, the, the real presence of Christ and the reality of charity. You know, uh, the best way to, to meet the Lord is, is with a with just a, a heart full of charity. Right. I mean, just an, an act of charity. Right. Um, and not just a habit of charity. Right. Uh, you, you can you know, there's distractions that come up. Right. It's not, you know, um, we can't always control that. Sometimes we can. Uh, but <laughs> sometimes, you know, thing, things get get in our way or something. But uh, to 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 try as, as much as you can really to just uh, ask for the grace of charity and to really meet the Lord with, with self-sacrificial love, you know, I mean, that's, uh, I think that that's the best disposition internally, you know, you can have. And, yeah. yeah. Hundreds of Catholics have left the church. Oh yeah. Ex-Catholics. Yeah. yeah. If you bring up the Eucharist, they will tell you, never dated the What is the proper response? What's a, what's a good charitable response that still has a politics? Yeah. It's never done anything. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think, yeah, so first of all, the Eucharist is real. You know, that's the first thing. Like, it's independent of your state of devotion or whether or not you're in a state of grace or not. The, the Eucharist is real, you know. And, and even if you're not uh, disposed to receive at the moment, let's say someone is outside the state of grace for whatever reason, to, to make a spiritual communion, to just be in the presence of the Eucharist, right, is a source of grace. Um, but a lot of that has to do with, I mean, does someone have living faith? Do they cultivate the life of charity? You can become, um, over time, less sensible to supernatural things, you know, if you allow yourself to be habituated in a disordered way to created goods, um, 
So a combination of a lot of things, not spending a lot of time around holy things, right? Not spending a lot of time with the sacraments and also spending time in ways that are not only ordered to um, very material things, but maybe ordered in a, a disordered way, let's say, you know, that can, can really deaden one's sensibility for the supernatural, which does make it harder to see, you know, the wisdom of God at work, even if the reality is unaffected. I mean, the, the real presence is not lessened in any way by the fact that someone doesn't believe it's there, right? It's, uh, it's, it's there, right? Uh, it's there just as much. But um, the effect that it has on them, you know, in, in some ways, that's, it's the working of grace. It's the, the primacy of grace. So I would, anyone in that situation, I would, I would pray um, for God just to stir up the life of grace in them with his, his, his operative grace, right, as an initiative on his part. Um, sometimes we think of the moral life as just trying harder, right, or sort of getting our act together or something like that. Um, it's really divine initiative, right, that moves, that turns the heart, you know, and inclines towards repentance and conversion. So that's possible. Sorry. <laughs> that's possible even in the yeah the hardest cases. You know, um, you'd be surprised. I mean, some of you just see like there's just a like. I mean, you can't see operative grace, but that that seemed like it right there. Like this person just went from A to B, sort of, you know. Um, so I, I would hold out a lot of optimism for that, you know, no matter how, yeah, hard people seem in their hearts, you know, with, uh, in relation to this, the Eucharist or any anything like that. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.